Amen. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to Psalm 120. If you're just joining us, or uh, I guess I've been gone for a few weeks, uh, through the spring and now the rest of summer, we're going to continue a series of messages uh, from the Psalms, this book of prayers. So we're going to look at Psalm 120 this morning. A number of years ago, I started... uh, bit of a writing project, call it a book. I, I didn't uh, necessarily plan on actually ever finishing it. I had no goal to, to be an author per se, but I had experiences in my own life and things that I was reflecting on, and, and I just had these ideas come to me. So every once in a while, I would sit down and work away at this beginnings of what could be a book manuscript. The working title I gave this was The Problem with Process. The subtitle was Life with God When All Your Ducks Are Not in a Row. Um, If you've ever looked into my office, you might be hard-pressed to believe what I'm about to tell you, but I really like being organized. I, I really like having things in order. I really like having things neat and clean and the way they're supposed to be. And when there's mess, when things are kind of off the rails, when there's books all over the place in my office, if you look, piling up, I have a pile system. (laughs) Not really a system, I suppose. Uh, I can get frustrated. I can can get overwhelmed when things are a mess, when there's chaos. Uh, Here's how this worked out in my life when I first thought of this book project. I was in my early 20s, and I was at Bible school, Bible college in Abbotsford. And and my experience was that before I could sit down to read a book or before I could sit down to write a paper, even I really felt this, before I could sit down to have quiet time with Jesus, to pray and to to read my Bible. I I had a hard time doing that in the midst of chaos. And so I'd I'd have to fold my laundry and put my clothes away. I'd wash my dishes and put them away. I'd make my bed and and get things clean and organized and in order. And then I could sit down. And that's why I called this the problem with process. I realized that that wasn't good because often life is a mess. But how, how do you live life with God when all your ducks are not in a row? That was my challenge uh, at that time, and still not, not one that I'm uh, completely past, though, again, uh, Exhibit A, I should have taken a picture and shown you. I, I'm learning to live in the midst of the mess. The, the psalm we're looking at this morning, Psalm 120, is a prayer prayed in the mess. When things are not ideal, when things are not the way we want them to be, Uh, There are some psalms, many psalms, that are beautiful, uh, lyrical uh, psalms, poems, songs in the Psalter. This is not one of them. This is harsh. It's jarring. And yet, it speaks an important word to us. God speaks an important word to us through it. And this psalm gives us, as prayers, voice to express what we experience in this life, when life is not neat and tidy, when things are not orderly, when we're in the midst of chaos, when we're in process. 
Now, before we turn to the psalm and I read it for you, with you, I, I want to say a few things. There's a few things I need to, to address uh, before that. So first, this psalm is the first of 15 psalms in the Psalter that are part of a, a song collection, a collection, if you will, within the larger book of Psalms. It's, it's a, the collection is called the Songs or Psalms of Ascent. Uh, from Psalm 120 to 134, those 15 psalms form this collection within the larger collection of the psalms. Uh, this psalm, secondly, this psalm, obviously, 120, is the first psalm of these psalms of ascent. It, it introduces the collection. And third, I want us to reflect on the significance of the fact that this collection of psalms, the songs of ascent, are called that, the songs of ascent, the psalms of ascent. Why is that? Uh, because these psalms were songs sung by God's people as they made their way as pilgrims up to the temple in Jerusalem uh, for the three major feasts. Jews were supposed to travel to the temple three times a year to celebrate three major festivals. And as close as we can tell, this collection of psalms, the Songs of Ascent, was the songbook for that journey, for that pilgrimage. God's people would sing these psalms as they ascended to Jerusalem. Now, now two important things. Uh, as I said, they, Jews were to travel to Jerusalem three times a year for uh, Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles in the autumn. Three times they would go. Two important things to note. First, for God's people, the temple was understood to be the place of God's presence. Certainly, God is present everywhere. God was present everywhere in their day. But he was understood to be uniquely present at the temple. The, the presence of God, the place of God's presence, is a theme we can trace throughout Scripture. If you think back with me in the Old Testament, Jacob, fleeing from his brother Esau, he, he goes out and he lies down and falls asleep, uses a stone as his pillow, right? Can't imagine that's terribly comfortable. I always think of that every time I read that story. He has a dream. He sees a ladder, a staircase from earth to heaven and angels descending and ascending. And when he wakes up, he calls that place Bethel or Bethel, the place of God's presence, the house of God. When God leads his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, God's presence goes before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When they come to Mount Sinai, God's presence covers the top of the mountain. When they build the tabernacle as God instructed Moses, God's presence fills the tabernacle. Later, when Solomon builds a temple, God's presence fills the temple. And then when they go into exile, we read this in Ezekiel, God's presence departs. And when we get to the New Testament, the, the people of God are waiting for God's presence, for the glory to return. And so it lends all kinds of significance to the fact when Jesus refers to himself as the temple, the place of God's presence. In fact, when Jesus calls his disciple Nathaniel, remember he, yeah, Philip went to Nathaniel and said, hey, you got to come see, we, we found the one who's the Messiah, and, and Nathaniel's not all that impressed. And then and then Jesus, when Nathanael comes, Jesus says, I, I saw you when you're still sitting under the fig tree. And, and Nathanael's blown away. And Jesus says, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I am now the presence of God. Israel understood that the, Jerusalem, the temple, to be the place where God was uniquely Present And so three times a year, God's people were to take this journey. They were to walk 
to Jerusalem. Secondly, and here this is significant, Jerusalem topographically is the highest city in Palestine. So any trip to Jerusalem to the place of God's presence was a trip up. No matter where you were coming from, you would be ascending. And so these songs were sung by God's people as they ascended. Thus, the songs of ascent. Joseph and Mary would have sung these psalms as they traveled to Jerusalem with young Jesus. Jesus himself would have sung these psalms as he traveled to Jerusalem with his disciples, along with countless other uh, Jewish people as they traveled to Jerusalem year after year, three times a year, to celebrate these feasts. They would have sung these psalms. This was their songbook for the pilgrimage. If you would uh, follow along, I will read now Psalm 120, 1 to 7. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. There are four realities that I want to uh, look at and I want to explore with you as we work our way through this psalm. Uh, reality number one is the reality of distress. Secondly, the reality of repentance. Third, the reality of longing. And fourth, the reality of mission. So the reality of distress, the reality of repentance, the reality of longing, and the reality of mission. The reality of distress uh, this is really easy for us to see, and it arises directly from the psalmist's description of his circumstances, the situation in which he finds himself. He asserts that he is in distress. Verse 1, I call on the Lord in my distress. In fact, in the, in the original language, in my distress, it comes first as far as word order. The first thing he says is, in my distress, I call to the Lord. That's how the ESV translates it, to, to follow more closely the word order. In my distress, he declares it right off the hop. And from his cry in verse 2, we recognize the cause of his distress. He is surrounded by lies. He is surrounded by liars. Look at verse 2. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Now, lying lips and deceitful tongues, that's a literary device. It's not just tongues and lips he's worried about. Those are used to speak of, of people as whole beings who lie in, in whom there is no truth. These body parts represent a whole person. And the people among whom the psalmist lives are liars. They are slanderers. They are deceivers. The psalmist is surrounded by people who are not truth-tellers. His world, the world in which he inhabits, is full of lies. And he is distressed. In my distress, I call to the Lord. But there's more going on here. Listen again to verse 6 and 7 at the end of the psalm. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Not only does the psalmist find himself in the midst of liars, those among whom he lives also hate peace. They are for war. They are violent. They are characterized by social strife, by conflict. They don't want peace. 
They're happy to engage in power plays and conflict to get their way. Immediately prior to those verses, verses 6 and 7, in verse 5 we read this, Woe to me me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. What does that mean? What's going on? Well, Meshach was a people group that lived in an area in northern Turkey, the the province of Pontus. Um, Later on, they pushed further east and north up into the area around Ukraine. So this is a, a, a violent people who lived in the north. Kedar was a son of Ishmael. We, uh, we read about him a little bit. He's mentioned in the book of Genesis. And he uh, was the father of a, a violent tribe, a wild tribe who lived in the Arabian desert in North Africa. So picture that on a map if you're any good at geography. Up in the Ukraine and down in Africa. And the psalmist says, too long have I lived among those, uh, sorry, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Now, how could a person live in both those places at once? You, you, you can't do that, and, and, and he can't. He doesn't literally live in both those places with both those groups. This is m- metaphorical. He is speaking of the heathen. He is speaking of those who do not know God, and he's speaking of those who are far from God. Geographically, these places are far from the place of God's presence. He's saying, I live among those who are hostile to God. I live among those who are hostile to the ways of God. The psalmist lives in a world that is filled with lies and violence and that is far from God, that is hostile to God. And the psalmist is distressed. There is within his cry a desperate note of homesickness. He, he longs to be elsewhere. He, he, he's not where he wants to be. He, he wants to be in Jerusalem. He wants to be in the place of God's presence. He is tired of living in this hostile environment full of lies and violence. And... But he's not there. But he is on the way. Remember, this psalm is the first in the psalms of ascent. This psalm is about taking a step towards Jerusalem. This is about getting on the road, the way of faith. This is about pursuing God. This psalm reminds the psalmist. This psalm was a a reminder to Jewish pilgrims. It was a prod to get them going of what is true about where they live. That they live in, a, in surroundings among people who are hostile to God and the ways of God. They live in a world full of lies and violence far from God. Among people who are far from God. Is this not true for you and I today? We live in a world that is far from God. We love, live among people who are hostile to God and the ways of God. We don't always pay close attention. We don't always notice that. And and so we need to be prodded. We need to be reminded. Eugene Peterson says this, the world is an atmosphere, a mood. It is nearly as hard for a sinner to recognize the world's temptations as it is for a fish to discover impurities in the water. Maybe you've heard the story about a fish swimming along, asked another fish, how's the water? fish said, what, what, what's water? 
We we just don't even necessarily pay attention to our context because this is life. This is this is where we live. What, what, What do you mean? But we live in a world that is hostile to God, which is hostile to to the ways of God. Do we recognize that? Are we aware of the hostility of the world in which we live? towards God and the ways of God and, and, and how unconducive that is for us to live lives of faith? Are we paying attention? We, we need to be prodded by this psalm. Do we feel distress like the psalmist as we look around and recognize our context? Peterson writes this, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to, be, has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he before she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Do we recognize what the psalmist recognized? Do we feel that distress as we look around at the hostility towards God and the ways of God? The first step towards God is a step away from the lies of the world. Uh, Our world is full of lies. Solutions to what ails us, solutions to the problems of the world, will not be found by looking to the world. We see this in advertising. Advertising does an amazing job, and in a moment we're going to watch a video, if you could just cue that up for me. Advertising tells us lies all the time. It tells us about solutions to our problems. It tells us what will make everything better. I want you to cue this up, and then I will talk about it in a moment. something really beautiful about that. 
but it's a lie. I, I mean, laughter is contagious. It's good to smile at each other. I even love Coke. But the message is that happiness begins with a smile. Just like if we just smile at each other and have a Coke, everything would be great. We'd be laughing and life would be awesome. Except that's not true. Happiness, true joy, begins when we surrender to God, when we surrender to Christ, when our life is made right with Him. He is the one who gives happiness. He is the one who brings joy. And yet we're inundated with lies all the time. And if we're not paying attention, we will believe them. Solutions to all that ails us. Solutions to all that ails this world is found in God and God alone. And the psalmist recognizes that reality. He recognizes that currently he lives in hostile territory and among hostile people, and he is distressed. This psalm exudes distress. The first line is, in my distress. And the last word of this prayer, this song, is war. Now, it might strike us as odd that this psalm would even be included, much less introduce a songbook for God's people, for Jewish pilgrims heading to Jerusalem, but it is actually very appropriate. It, it reminds them, it reminds us of the, the hostile territory in which we find ourselves, that, that we're not living in ideal circumstances, that we are in the, the midst of a, a messy time, messy realities. And it serves as a prod to get them going, to get us going in the road on the way of faith. Let's turn to the second reality. The second reality is that of repentance. Uh, the psalmist recognizes the hostility of the world in which he finds himself, and he recognizes that, that God is his only hope. And so he turns to God, he calls out to God, Save me, Lord. Repentance is the first word in the Christian life. When John the Baptist came preaching, he said, repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began to preach, his preaching echoed John's preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Peter concludes his Pentecost message calling those listeners, repent and be baptized. Repentance is turning from living life on your own terms and surrendering to God. It is surrendering oneself completely and fully to God and God's ways. Again, Eugene Peterson articulates this so well. Repentance is not an emotion. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength education and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you've been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. Repentance is turning. It is turning to God. It is surrendering to God. It is walking in the way of faith, following after Christ. We are pilgrims. We are travelers. We are not at home in this world. P. 
Peter says this in, in, in his letter, 2 Peter, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. How would we live differently if we understood that this is not our home, that we are passing through, that we are foreigners, that we are pilgrims, that we are travelers walking in the way of faith? Verse 6 of our text says, Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. Peterson paraphrases that verse this way, I live in the midst of hoodlums and wild savages. This world is not my home and I want out. The psalmist is one who recognized his surroundings and repented. He had turned to God, surrendered to God, and he, and along with all the others in this pilgrim way, on the way to Jerusalem, walking in the way of faith, it brings us to our third reality, and that concerns our longings. Perhaps more accurately, our transformed longings. When we repent, when we turn from living as our own gods, and we surrender to God, when we surrender to Christ, when we begin to follow Christ, living as His disciples, God begins to change us. He begins to transform us, our longings, our affections. See, it's not that, and we got to catch this, it's not that the psalmist somehow was better than those amongst whom he lived. There was nothing inherently different about him except for the fact that he repented and turned to God. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, most people today want to think of themselves as peaceful and peace-loving, but they are not. None of us are. None of us are. That is, God is not, we need to hear this, God is not searching for good people to join the church. He's searching for men and women who recognize that they're not good, men and women who recognize that they are broken and without hope apart from Christ, who would come to Him and cry out for His mercy. He's looking for those who are, to quote the Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit, who know that they're spiritually bankrupt. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a powerful story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Tax collectors, tax collectors were hated. They were Jews who were working for the Romans. They were taxing their fellow Jews, taking advantage of them uh, to, to get, get wealthy. And they were supporting Rome. And, and so the Jewish people hated them. The, the tax collectors was, I mean, that's its own category of sinner. There were sinners and there were tax collectors. And then there were Pharisees. Pharisees were very religious. They cared about holiness, piety, they, uh, about obedience. They, they focused on uh, religiously keeping the law. And so people of that day would have looked up to Pharisees as they are the spiritually mature ones. And Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee goes in and he looks up and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. And the tax collector doesn't even look up. He just cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector who went home justified. It's the tax collector who went home declared holy, righteous, pure, who was redeemed, who was adopted. The tax collector, not the Pharisee. So this isn't about somehow Christians are better than anyone else. It's not that. It's that through repentance and faith, we are made new. Repentance and faith changes everything. And God begins His transformative work in us. 
So look at what we see here in God's transforming work in the psalmist. First, he says he longs to dwell. We recognize he longs to dwell in the presence of God. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. He currently is living in this hostile territory, and it's killing him. He's distressed by it. He longs to be in God's presence. And he's embarking on this journey, this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the place of God's presence, to worship God, to celebrate God. We see something else here, too. Not only does he desire to be home in the place of God's presence, he is also for peace. The Hebrew term translated peace is shalom. It's a a very rich term. Too often we think of peace as simply meaning quiet. Parents, when your kids are not screaming and it's actually quiet, you go, there's peace. Or or, or when there's a war and and there's a, a ceasefire and no one's shooting guns and we go, oh, peace at last. Except both of those ways of thinking fall horribly short of what Shalom means biblically. Peace means biblically. Peace is so much more than just the absence of noise or the absence of conflict. Shalom speaks of the right relatedness of all things. We have shalom, we have peace when we are when we are in a right relationship with God, forgiven and cleansed and adopted and, and where we receive His love and we love Him in return. Peace is when we are in right relationship with one another where there's, there's, there's love and compassion and gentleness and care. Peace is when we live in a right relationship with creation. No more thorns and thistles and death. James Mays writes, Shalom in the psalmic vocabulary is the hopefulness and wholeness of life when living is knit into the fabric of relatedness to God, others, and the world. When, when all is as it should be, that's shalom. That's peace. A psalmist longs for peace. But those among, he lives, uh, among whom he lives are for war. But God has transformed his longings, transforms his affections. He longs to be in the place of God's presence. He longs to experience the shalom of God. Leads us to the fourth reality. This one may not be immediately obvious, and that is the reality of mission. God's call on our lives to live as his missionary people. God's call for us to engage in inviting others who currently are hostile to God, hostile to the ways of God, to join us as pilgrims in the way of faith. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. What will he do to you And what more besides you, deceitful tongue, he will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. These words certainly strike us as anything but hopeful. That they are words of coming judgment, spoken by the psalmist, sung by the psalmist. I'm I'm guessing that they didn't sing this immediately in their village as they started, but waited till they were out of earshot. Seeing these words of judgment against those who are hostile to God. They, they stand as a warning. But think with me, what is a warning about? A, a warning is ultimately for one's good. They are aimed at accomplishing good. They are aimed at turning people from a destructive way to the good way, the way we should go. 
We read it here. God's arrows are judgments aimed at provoking repentance. God's arrows are judgments aimed at provoking repentance. The pain of judgment called down against evildoers could turn them also from their deceitful and violent ways to join other pilgrims on the way of peace. Any hurt that puts us on the path of peace, setting us free from the pursuit in Christ, for the pursuit in Christ of eternal life. These words are words of warning, judgment that will befall those who are hostile, those who are lying and violent, and those who choose war over peace, over God's shalom. But they are, they are a word of warning in order that those people might turn from where they are and join us, join the people of God in the way of faith and this pilgrimage to God. An important biblical truth is made really clearly visible here in this psalm. Derek Kidner writes this, This little passage is a classic comment on the unequal yoke, the incompatibility of light and darkness, which no amount of goodwill short of capitulation or conversion can resolve. So he's, he's saying that, that for Christians relative to non-Christians, there is a danger of capitulation, that is that we are led astray by them, or conversion, that they come to Christ. But there is this reality of stark difference. Paul writes about this, speaking about idolatry in 2 Corinthians. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So on the one hand, there's this warning in Scripture, and we see that here. But it's not only this warning for us, it is also this call because there is no room at all. Yes, we've got to be careful about compromise, but there's no room at all for animosity. That is, we are called clearly in Scripture to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. That is, we are called, we are given a mission, that is to go to those who are hostile with this word of warning about God's judgment and this word of invitation to join us in the way of faith. That's our call all around us, in our families, in our neighborhoods, where we buy our groceries and buy our gas, where we go to school, where we work, are men and women who right now do not know Christ, who stand under God's coming judgment, and we have been given a mission to love to proclaim the hope that we have found in Christ. And so we need to see that. There's, there's, there's no room here reading this psalm go, oh, just, just hate everyone, have animosity towards us. No, this word of warning is actually a call for us to mission, to proclaim this word of warning and call men and women to repentance and faith, to join us in the way of faith. So to inspire us to share, by whatever means possible, the hope that we have received in Christ. Jesus is our only hope. It is only by His grace that we have been saved. It is only by His grace that we have been forgiven. It is only by His grace that we are declared now holy, perfect, blameless, spotless. And that gift that we have received in Christ is available to all who will repent and believe. Thus we warn and we invite. We live on mission. Non-believers, if you're here with us, 
in the building or with us online, I, I want to speak to you for a moment. I want to proclaim to you the love of Christ. God loves you. God's desire is to redeem you, to adopt you, to make you His daughter, His son. Jesus came out of love for you and He went to the cross. And the Bible tells us that He suffered the penalty that, that I deserve and that you deserve. And, and that He suffered all of it. He, he drank the cup of God's wrath, God's punishment for our sin to the very dregs, to the very bottom. And so that through faith in Him, we are forgiven. But more than that, we're not, we're not just forgiven and washed and cleansed. He doesn't just give us a, a clean slate now, and, and now we got to do it. No, He also gives us, He clothes us with His perfection, with His righteousness, so that even now, even in our failures, we are holy because of Christ. And God's desire is that you would surrender to Him in repentance and faith. And I want to tell you that you, like all of us, so easily can believe the lies of the world that we will find satisfaction, that we will find peace, that we will find joy in other things. Have a Coke, laugh with a bunch of people on a subway, everything will be great. But it's not true. You want joy, you want peace, you want satisfaction, you will find it only in Jesus because you were made by Him for Him. So today I encourage you, Come to Him. Repent and believe. Surrender. Turn from your way and begin the walk of faith. Trust in Him. Recognize that He alone is your hope, just as He alone is my hope. We stand in the same place, except I and others have repented and believed, repented of our sins. We've turned and we've put our hope in Jesus. We invite you to join us in the way of faith. We live in the midst of a mess, in the midst of hostility. This world is not our home. And we are called by God, saved by God, called to join in this journey that God's people would have begun their journey with this psalm. Starkly painting a picture of the reality in which they live, life is not all ideal. They are far from God's presence geographically in that day. Now, obviously, God is present everywhere as those who are in Christ, God's Spirit, His presence indwells in us. And yet, this imagery of pilgrimage, this imagery of walking in the way of Jesus, of following Him, is what we're called to. I just want to say this, because I think many in the church, we need to hear this, that our Christian faith, is not merely a matter of mental assent to a set of propositional truth claims. Yes, we, we need to believe, but, but too much in North American Christianity, our faith is divorced from our lives, and it's just about faith. Oh, I believe. I said a sinner's prayer. I crossed the line. No, we, we are, we're called to believe and follow. We are called into the way of faith, this journey of, of, as pilgrims. To follow Jesus as disciples. Repentance is not the end. It's not the goal. It's just the beginning. And so let's hear that. Let's be prodded by this psalm, this song in our journey that we would fix our eyes on 
God, that we would pursue Christ, that we would follow Him, that we would walk with Christ by the power of His Spirit. That, that a month from today, that a year from today, we would, be, we would be more mature in Christ, that we will have grown in our love for Christ, that we will have traveled a little further in that journey. It's not that we do anything to, to accomplish our salvation. Please don't hear that. God's gift of salvation is completely a free gift of His grace. But, but we need to understand that this life is the journey, the pilgrimage of walking with Jesus, walking in the way of faith by the power of His Spirit, in the truth of the Gospel. His love, His grace, His mercy, His righteousness as a gift. I want to close with these words. William Faulkner wrote this in speaking of, about these Psalms of Ascent. He said, they are not monuments, but footprints. A monument only says, at least I got this far. While a footprint says, this is where I was when I moved again. I love that. This is where I was when I moved again. What is Jesus calling you to? What's the next step in your journey of faith with Christ? What will be different in your life after today, what does it mean for us to be aware of our surroundings and to walk in the way of faith in Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord, and our King? Amen.